We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 4. And just to refresh our minds, we shall read this chapter, Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper, and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders, and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass, like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat in the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat in the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And may the Lord again bless to us this reading of his word. And we come to consider further this vision that is given to John And of course, it is given to John for very good reason and under very difficult circumstances as far as he was concerned personally and as far as the church in his generation was concerned. John, as we've already pointed out, it states he was in the Isle of Patmos because At the time, the church was being very severely persecuted. And it was the custom of the Romans, certain 
criminals were put in the, it was just a rocky island, and they were put, in fact, it was uh, more like a kind of a concentration camp, and the prisoners were put in to work in the mines, and it's very possible that that's what would have occupied John. He would have been working in the mines, but as a, an older man, it may well be that he was uh, allowed uh, certain liberties because he was an old man <coughs> at this time. And in the midst of all his afflictions, isolated from the church, the people of God, the churches in Asia, here he is alone. But how remarkable it is to see that he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It didn't matter to John where he was. The Lord's day was the Lord's day. And John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He had the Spirit of worship, the Spirit of meditation. And his mind was very obviously focused on divine and spiritual things. That's a mark of a true child of God. Wherever you find the child of God, north, south, east, or west, the Lord's day is always special to them. Wherever they go, and here's John, his circumstances are difficult, He's in isolation, but the Lord's day is the Lord's day to him. And here he is receiving this great blessing where his mind and his heart and his spirit are lifted away from this scene of time, lifted into the heavenly presence of God himself. And those who do not observe the Lord's day how can they ever even think that they are going to receive any spiritual blessing? The Lord's day was for the good of his people. And here we have John and the Lord's day. He is called up into the presence of God to see things which must be Hereafter, of course, that was very important to John. When we come to the book of the Revelation, people have all kinds of different approaches to it, and it's little wonder there's so much confusion about what it actually means. The book of Revelation was not given to satisfy the curious, entertain the minds of curious people. The book of the Revelation is given to the church. And it is given to the church to comfort the church. Back in Isaiah, God said to the prophet regarding his afflicted people, and they deserve to be afflicted, but there come a time when he said, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. 
And God himself said that even though his people were saying, God hath forgotten me, God was saying to them, I have comforted them. And God, through the book of the Revelation, is comforting his people. He's comforting and counseling his church. It is a book full of encouragement for the church of Jesus Christ. Now here, John is brought under these conditions to be shown things which must be. Things that must be. Not things that could possibly be. Things that might be. Things that are going to be. Things that are absolutely certain. Now John lived in the world of change. He didn't know what one day would bring forth following another. He doesn't know how long he'll be in Patmos. And he's just written to the seven churches in Asia. And no doubt he was greatly concerned about the spiritual state and the spiritual condition of them. And he remembers the last of the apostles. He's an old man. James is gone. Peter's gone. All the other apostles, they've all gone. I remember one of my old elders, one of the oldest elders I had, and one occasion we were talking and he started to reflect and he was talking about those that had been in office with him in years past. And then he was saying, you know, they're all gone. Sometimes you feel lonely because you don't really fit into the new or the modern, the young generation. Those that you worked with, those that you were uh, companions to, They've all gone. And you imagine John as an old man and be thinking, I remember the martyrdom of James. I remember when they put him to death. I've heard about Peter's crucifixion. I've heard what's happened to all those that I used to walk with and talk with. And he would recall the sweet times they were around the feet of the Savior. It's all different now. It's a changed world. And he's thinking, the apostles that went out into the world to teach the things that Christ commanded them, their ministries almost ended. And I see the dangers in the church. I have been writing to the churches where there's compromise, where they have introduced error, where they are tolerating error and so on. And John might be thinking, I wonder when, when I'm gone, when we're all gone, what's going to happen then? What will the spirit of the church be then? Will it survive? And then he's conscious of the mighty power of Rome to persecute. And he looks and he thinks, well, I'm alive, but others are dead. 
They've been put to death. I have been spared, but here I am. And, and he would remember there are those in, in Asia in the churches, and they've been put to death, and more are likely to be put to death. And then he would be thinking, as we pointed out, the opposition of the uh, Judaizers who compromised with Rome to persecute the Christians, and all these things are in the mind and in the spirit of John. What's going to happen? What will happen to the church? What is the world going to do to the church? How is it going to survive these terrible persecutions? All this opposition. And then what do we hear? John is called up into the presence of God to see what? Things that might happen. Things that could possibly happen. Things that Rome just might do. Things that the Jews just might be able to know. The things that must be. John, you are going to get a look into reality. You're going to see, John, the truth. And it's encouraging, John. You're going to see who's in control, John. It's not Caesar. And therefore, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And now we come to having to attempt to explain symbols. And this is where people often go astray. Now, you and I are living in a very different day to John, very different culture. Our minds are conditioned very differently. We're educated very differently. But remember, whenever John sees all these symbols throughout the book of the Revelation, he can understand them a lot easier than we can, and he can understand their significance a lot better. On occasions, he may ask the meaning and have it explained, but in general, you see the conveying of knowledge and teaching by symbols wasn't anything really new to John. He was familiar with the scriptures of the Old Testament. When he would read from Isaiah, when he would read from Ezekiel, when he would read from the minor prophets, he would, when he'd read from Daniel, he was familiar with teaching and instruction coming via symbols and emblems and so on. Now this had always been the case among the Hebrew people. It's very interesting, you know, how people don't pay attention to what the Bible really says again and again. With the result that they get some strange ideas into their heads 
or they imbibe the strange notions of some others who, as Peter says, they take the word of God and they manipulate it. Have I asked you what language was the Old Testament written in? What language was the New Testament written in? What would you say? You say everybody knows. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, wasn't it? With a little bit of Chaldee here and there. The New Testament, everybody knows, was written in Greek. And so on. What is... God's word tell us about the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. When Peter is, or rather Stephen is preaching in the Acts chapter 7, and that great sermon that he ended up dying for preaching, he tells us about the author of the Pentateuch, the one who wrote what we refer to as the five books of Moses. And what does he tell us in chapter 7 of Acts? That uh, Moses, verse 37, the prophet that the Lord raised up, he was uh, in the church of the Old Testament And he gave the oracles to the people as delivered to him from God. But what he tells us is this, that Moses was educated in a particular country, in a particular culture, and Moses was educated how and why and where. He was learned... And all the wisdom of what? The wisdom of Egypt. Now, even the children, when they go to school, and they learn anything about Egypt, and they learn anything about the pyramids, or, for example, the great sphinx, what do they see? A peculiar kind of beast, like a lion with a human head and a little veal like the Egyptians. What kind of reading did Moses read? What kind of writing did Moses write? You could take Moses to the great edifices that tell us about the history of the Egyptians. What are they, what kind of writing is it? It's all hieroglyphics. What do you see? Line upon line of strange creatures. Human bodies with the head of a falcon. You see creatures of all kinds. The the body of a man, the head of a lion. 
Even the very soul, the way that the Egyptians depicted the soul in their writing, in their art, was a flying bird with a human head. So it was absolutely nothing strange to communicate and have knowledge and facts, historical facts, and genealogies and all the rest of it conveyed in the language and the strange language of symbols. Now Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians in order to serve God, in order to erect the tabernacle, in order to uh, teach the Israelites, the Hebrew people, how to understand the mind of God. And so when it comes to the point where Moses is taken up into the mount and God tells him he's to erect a tabernacle and God tells him how he's to do it. And God tells them every detail. And I come back to a point we ended it with last week, but we didn't get time to further open it up. But this notion that there are sects and cults around, and they distort the word of God and they impose their opinions on others, about imagery and idolatry and so on. And you can't have this and you can't do that. That's idolatry and that's blasphemous and so on. And they haven't a clue what they're even talking about. What did God tell Moses to do? He told him to erect a temple or a a, a tabernacle. Full of imagery. What kind of imagery? Heavenly imagery. Go with me to the book of Hebrews, and there you see in chapter 9, here's the apostle, and he's writing of the ministry of the Savior, And he tells us where his ministry was, his his ongoing ministry now. Hebrews 9, Christ, verse 11, being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now, this is written to the Hebrews. What tabernacle do they ever think about? They knew perfectly where they weren't wondering, what's this all about, this tabernacle? They knew exactly what the tabernacle meant. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy Place, the very place that we are going to consider 
in Hebrew or in Revelation 4. The place that John is taken into on the Lord's day, this is the place that the apostle is telling us Christ entered into. Now, go over to the latter part of this chapter 9. What do we read? Verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns, note that, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens where were the patterns? The patterns were in the tabernacle. And the patterns were in the temple. What were they patterns of? They were patterns of things in heaven, in the very presence of God. Now, some of you ladies... If you sew or whatever, you follow a pattern. If you're going to get the finished article correct, you stick to the pattern. The pattern isn't the reality. But it is a pattern of the reality. And here's what God says was the ministry of Christ, what it was about, it was necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves, see the difference? The heavenly things themselves, the patterns of the heavenly things themselves, two very different matters. Verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true patterns, figures. But into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, what kind of patterns was Moses to make? What kind of figures was he to present in order to instruct the Hebrews and eventually the Christian church too? I just stop and think for a moment. The commandment says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything where? that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. Is the book of Hebrews contradicting this? Patterns? You can't do that, Moses. Of things in heaven, you dare not do that. Figures. Of things in heaven, things in, you can't possibly do that, Moses. See, the fact is, God was very specific. Let's just look at it in a 
in Exodus chapter 20. God is always specific. And what does he tell these Israelites? Thou shalt not make unto thee, unto thee, any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. Why does God say that? It was very necessary to say that. Because you see the tendency in the human heart and the tendency even among the people to whom these words are addressed. When Moses is delayed up in the mountain and the people become annoyed and impatient, they say to Aaron, make us gods. And he, of course, produces a golden calf and the next thing, They're bowing down to this image as though it represented God. What is God saying? You do not worship images. You do not worship likenesses. You do not worship figures. Now then, let's stop for a moment. And see where these notions take people. Whenever they get the idea they're more clever than God, then they're more pious than the average. Let's just consider all the articles in the tabernacle. The altar. The mercy seat. All the different... Who did they represent? Who did they typify? Who did the cherubims whose wings met and they looked down on the mercy seat where the blood was to be sprinkled? They represented these high, high exalted creatures in heaven who are right at the very throne of God. But... Let's go to the high priest himself. Who does he represent? What is the figure of the high priest? What likeness does he represent? With his garments of beauty and glory? With a crown on his head? With his breastplate and all the sparkling jewels? When he goes in, into the Holy of Holies, what is ringing around the bottom of his garment, his priestly garment? A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate. How dare he go into the presence of God with these images, these likenesses of things on earth? according to their reasoning. But even more, who does the high priest, who does he prefigure? 
Who does he represent? The one whom God has given a name which is above every name. The very king of glory himself. Here is Moses instructed. Does he think, well now, hold on a minute, God, please. You've given me these ten words, these ten commandments. And then now you're telling me to make these likenesses. That doesn't make any sense. Why was God saying this? Because they were not allowed to bow down before and worship the likenesses. Even though the high priest, he's clothed, he's robed. Who is he representing? If there's anything in heaven you would think he dare not represent or anyone, It must be God's son. You see, when people really take note of what God says, they will understand what God means. But when they take it into their head that they are going to believe this and furthermore impose it on others, you have heresy everywhere. God knew what he was doing. He said, Moses, you robe that priest, you make likenesses of things in heaven and also things in the earth. But Moses, you do not worship the priest. You do not worship his garments. You do not worship the image. You remember back in the last book of Revelation 22, you have John and he's, he's in the presence of an angel who's guiding him in regard to things in heaven. And John recognized this angelic being in whose presence I am is so superior to me. That in verse 8 of Revelation 22, we read, John says, in verse 8, When I heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. You see, that's, that's in the human heart, you see. And God knew that. And you see this in Roman Catholicism. You see how... It's in the human heart to venerate uh, that which is me. Imagine venerating a box of bones or whatever else. I don't know what image that's supposed to be, but that's how it is. It becomes absurd. What did the angel say to John? Do it not. See thou do it not. That's what God was saying to the Israelites. See thou do it not. You don't worship the images. You don't worship the figures. 
You worship God. And uh, that's what the angel said to John. Worship God. Now why am I concentrating on such a matter? Because if we don't understand these things, we'll go astray trying to observe the imagery and the types and the symbols that are in this book. Now, here John sees the throne. Now, was it a material throne? When the door was opened into heaven... Immediately he says, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. Now, what does God tell us before John sees this? You go back with me to the book of the prophecy of Isaiah. And there in chapter 66, this is what God has to say in verse 1. Thus saith the Lord. The heaven is my throne. Now John saw a throne, he says. And he said a door was opened into heaven and he saw this throne. Now would John say, well that's a bit different to what Isaiah the prophet was telling us. That God said. If John was able to look And here he sees a particular throne, a material throne, and it's fixed in some position in heaven. Is that what John was thinking and talking about? God says, the heaven is my throne. The whole heaven is my throne. I occupy the whole heaven. From east to west, from north to south, from infinity to infinity. It's all my throne. Then God says, because the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye should build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? And again, you Uh, see that uh, Isaiah mentioned, God, through Isaiah rather, mentions this, and then the apostles take it up. In in, uh, Acts 7, we've already looked at it. God's throne is in heaven, or God's throne, the heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. Now, if we don't compare Scripture with Scripture, We're going to lose ourselves, aren't we? Heaven is my throne. But how is John going to explain this? Then we come to even a greater problem. What did we read in the sixth chapter of Paul's first epistle to Timothy? What did we read there? We read of God himself. God's person and God's character. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. 
God, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see. How's John going to tell us he saw someone on this throne? Whoever he saw then, it must be less than God. How is John going to write and tell us about immortality? How do you depict that? How do you depict the God who's never been seen? How do you depict the invisible? Isn't God invisible? How's John going to tell us the invi- what does the invisible look like? You take a camera out and try to photograph the invisible. What will you see? There's nothing visible. Now here John comes before the throne. And he begins to describe for us what he's seeing. What is it? The invisible God. And John's business is to make the invisible God visible to us. How's he going to do that? In the epistle that Paul writes to the Romans in the first chapter, we get some ideas to how John might possibly do it. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells the Romans of those who reject the evidence of the existence of God. And he says in verse, writes verse 19 of Romans 1, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. That which may may be known of God. Well, how is it going to be known if God's invisible? And God is immortal, and God is eternal, and God is infinite. How is it going to be known? Well, verse 20. God has showed it to them, verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What is Paul saying? You understand the invisible through the visible. Now, there was a teacher once and She was teaching the children about history and religious history and God and so on. 
So she was showing them the great works of art that the great artists had painted, supposedly to depict God. I remember once when we were in, I think it was Poland, and we went on a tour on one occasion, and the tour guide was taking us to these ancient buildings, including all ancient churches. And he was showing all the artwork. And he was supposedly explaining, and he would say, that's Abraham, and that's Moses, and that's God, that's God the Father, if you believe those things. He said, I don't believe them, you might. And artists have tried to depict God, the invisible. And then you see they depend on their own imagination to try and convey certain characteristics of God. And this teacher, you see, she was, now, boys and girls, I I want you to paint what you think God looks like. Of course, they'd seen all these paintings and pictures. They were to use their imagination. As they're working away, the teacher was going around looking at their efforts. Here's a little lassie and she's drawn this old grandfather figure with white hair and a long white beard. Then someone else, this very pleasant looking man with his hand upon a little child to convey the idea of how much he loved children because the teacher had been telling God loves little children and God's this and that and the other. And she came to this little fellow and she looked in amazement at what he was doing. And she said, Thomas, what's this you've painted? Because all she could see was raindrops falling down, splashing in puddles, dark clouds in the sky, flashes of lightning, trees all blowing in the wind. She said, Thomas, where's God? He said, Miss, that's God. But, 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 where's God? That's God. Well, you better explain yourself. Miss, that is God in action. That is God in action. The lightning, the wind, the rain, that is God in action. And that, you see, very often how we understand, how we gain a knowledge of God. The visible explains so much of the character and the attributes of the invisible God. But, as we said, going right back to Moses, the minds of the Hebrews had been taught, instructed, enlightened, and they learned much. They learned about God, the the 
the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle, the temple was full of these figures of the cherubims, very important figures. They had all the different symbols constantly teaching them of God, the altar, teaching them of God's holiness, the offerings, the priesthood, everything was teaching them about God and his justice and his holiness and his mercy and so on. But here, John has the task of conveying to the churches for their comfort the knowledge that they needed to encourage them of the majestic being who occupies the throne of glory to bring about the things which must be. I just look at a number of things that we need to consider. There's the occupant of the throne. What does John see about him? There is also those who are around the throne. What does John tell us about them? And then there is what is before the throne. The occupant of the throne, what is around the throne, and what is before the throne. Maybe we could look at what is before the throne first, so that we can see the connection with what we've been previously saying all about the Old Testament imagery and and, and symbols and so on. What is John Tellers, verse 5, Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices. Now, what would John, what would you immediately think? If you read the Old Testament, what would you immediately think about when you read these words? You would think of Moses up on Mount Sinai, where the people were afraid. They weren't allowed to come near the mountain. Have any, even a beast came near, it was to be thrust through with a dart. And the people feared and quaked, we are told. Why? Because of the thunderings and the lightnings and the voices. And here is John conveying to you and I the realities, the heavenly realities of the invisible God, the immortal God, the infinite God in symbols. The God who gave the law. The God who chose his people. The God who is ruling and reigning sovereignly over all his creation. Now what do we read? And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Now, as well as symbols, we, we have to, individual symbols, you've also to remember some of the symbols are interlinked. Because there's more than one aspect of truth that we are to learn from it. Look at what we read here, verse 5. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, seven, of course, is a significant number. It's the number of completion and perfection. 
And this is simply a way of conveying the uh, perfections of the divine person, of the Holy Spirit. But if you go over to the chapter (coughs) 5, the next chapter, this is what John tells us in verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Now note, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. The seven spirits of God are now depicted in a different fashion. These things, you see, are to teach certain things regarding the persons of the Godhead, the invisible God. But, getting back to that which is before the throne, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Then verse 6, And before the throne there was a sea of glass, like unto crystal. Now there's one other thing that is to be one other article that we might mention, chapter 8, verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So you've got seven golden candlesticks before the throne. You have uh, the sea of glass before the throne. And you have this golden altar before the throne. And what were we looking at in Hebrews 9? The figures of the things in heaven. The tabernacle figuring, representing symbolically and typically the things in heaven. Now when we go to the tabernacle, to the Holy of Holies, what's before the throne? The throne, of course, was where the mercy seat was. That's where God exercised his authority and his rule among the tribes of Israel. Now, what was before the throne? The seven-branched golden candlestick. What else was before the throne in the tabernacle? There was, here John speaks of a Sea of glass. What did David, uh, what Solomon rather, Solomon, he had a molten sea. And it held, I think, somewhere around 24,000 gallons of water. But that was because Solomon, you see, was doing everything on a larger scale, a greater scale. The sea the molten sea was before the throne and the tabernacle. It was merely a lever. 
but it was the smaller representation of the molten sea for the washing of the priests. They would, before they came into the presence of God, before they ventured, before the high priest would venture into the Holy of Holies, he had to come and all the priests had to come and wash at the lever and in the temple they had to come to the sea, the molten sea. Here, it's a sea of crystal. A sea like unto crystal. And then, before the uh, throne in the Old Testament tabernacle, what else was before it? The golden altar. It was right in the Holy of Holies before the throne. So, immediately we're made aware what John is seeing is that which was typified, and that which was taught to the people through these symbols and uh, uh, through these figures. Now John is seeing the heavenly realities, what the altar really meant, what the lever really means, what the great molten uh, sea that was resting on the backs of twelve oxen. What all these things really meant. And when he sees beyond this which is before the throne, he sees all those who are around the throne. What does he see? Verse 4 uh, Around about the throne were four and twenty seats, or thrones. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting. Immediately John is aware that he's in a place of order. A place of government. There's nothing chaotic here in heaven. Nothing disorderly here. The elders, and we shall come to see them later, 24, not 12, but two sets of 12, representing the, the uh, tribes of Israel of old, the 12 tribes, 12 patriarchs. And then in the New Testament, the 12 apostles, the foundation. It's amazing that John... What an encouragement it must have been to him whenever he is shown the heavenly Jerusalem and the, the new Jerusalem and so on. And verse 14 of Revelation 21, the wall of the city had twelve foundations and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I tell you, if I'd have been John, I'd have been fascinated. A door is opened into heaven. He sees his own name there. My name in heaven. Where God dwells. The great angelic beings. All the glory and the majesty. All this glory... And amidst it all, 
My name. And there's John in the Isle of Patmos. Maybe down cast, dispirited. What a sight. My name's in heaven. And that is the case with every one of the Lord's dear people. Their names are there. But coming back to that which is around the throne. The four and twenty elders. What was John writing to these churches? To them that would overcome. They would reign with him in his throne. And we shall see the occupant of the throne as the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And here are these elders on the thrones around the throne of the Lamb. Here you have heaven's government. What kind of government is it? Some people think, you know, that I'm a bit obsessed with Presbyterianism. Well, if I am, little wonder. Because... Here around the throne, what does John see? Four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty presbyters. That's what the word is. It's presbyters. So whenever we pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, We better make sure we've got heavenly government. And we better make sure the church is ruled by heavenly presbyters. That's the order in heaven. And what else is around the throne? There are these peculiar beasts that we haven't time to consider now. But they are significant. They are mysterious creatures. But remember when we go back to the Old Testament, go right back to Moses. He was educated to think of creatures mysterious in themselves, but representing particular realities. You go to Isaiah, you go to Ezekiel, you go to Daniel, and you'll see again and again the appearance of mysterious creatures. But they all represent realities. The time is gone. We haven't any time to go further with it just now. But the one thing take note of. John is describing for us the invisible. He's making visible to us the invisible. And he's showing us the realities that one day every one of us are going to be confronted with. We will all be brought before this throne eventually to meet this God, the Lamb in the midst of the throne. But may the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy And eternal God, we pray that thou wilt teach us 
our great need to humble ourselves in thy holy presence. How exceedingly great thou art. Thy glory is beyond our ability to comprehend. And yet it has pleased thee, the invisible God, the one who only hath immortality, dwelling in light that no man can approach unto, the God whom no man has seen nor can see, revealing himself. Oh, may we fall like John in humility and contrition before thy majesty to recognize thy greatness, to worship thee in spirit and in truth. Bless us, pardon us, receive us, for Christ's sake. Amen.